Hello, I'm Richard Suchet, director at Portland and former news correspondent for Sky News and LBC. And today I'll be talking to Roger Mosey, who was editor of the Today programme on Radio 4 between 1993 and 1997, before becoming controller of BBC Five Live. And he was later editorial director at the BBC. He's now master of Selwyn College, Cambridge. We'll be getting to the point on the concept of due impartiality and how the likes of GB News and News UK TV are going to navigate that crucial part of the broadcasting code. Can you be right-wing and impartial? Where does the broadcast regulator Ofcom stand on news with views? What even is due impartiality? And is it something worth fighting for? This is To The Point. Well, the TV news landscape is arguably about to undergo its most radical change since the launch of Sky News in 1989. The BBC News Channel became a serious competitor in 97, but nothing else has really been game-changing. Russia Today and Al Jazeera English have found an audience, although uh, a very, very small audience in the UK, and the ITV 24-hour news channel was only on air for five years. But now two new news channels are on the cusp of launching in the UK, and by the time you listen to this, they might have already launched. They've both got big financial backing and big-name talent already signed up. Rupert Murdoch is launching News UK TV, and he's chosen a former Fox News executive to head up the channel. Meanwhile, a hedge fund manager and a Dubai-based investment group are among the major backers of GB News, which will be chaired by Andrew Neil, who incidentally was involved in the launch of Sky in 1989. But these are not going to be rolling news channels. Andrew Neil has said GB News will be more like American news broadcasters like MSNBC and Fox News. To quote him, he has said... They do news when it breaks, but they don't do continuous rolling news. They segment the day into individual programmes, news-based programmes built around very strong presenters or anchors, as they call them in the United States. And that's what we will do too. It'll have anchors with a bit of edge, a bit of attitude, a bit of personality, and people will make an appointment to view them. That's the plan. Well, the channel's director of news and programmes, John McAndrew, who's one of my former bosses at Sky, has said that GB News will be free, fair, impartial and Ofcom regulated. But it is widely believed the channel will be right wing. And when you look at the lineup of presenters, you can see why. Former apprentice candidate Michelle Dubry, who stood for Nigel Farage's Brexit party in two general elections, Talk Radio in the Sun's Dan Wooten, an MEP for the Brexit party, uh, Alexandra Phillips, commentator and anti woke campaigner Inaya Follerin Iman, who's probably best known for her critique of the Black Lives Matter movement, and Andrew Doyle, the comedian known for his parody of fictional left winger called Titiana McGrath. The channel has even teased a segment called Woke Watch. So, we're on the cusp of TV news with views, but here's the catch. The law says that broadcast news in whatever form must be reported with due accuracy and presented with due impartiality. The regulator Ofcom will have the power to fine them or even retract their broadcasting licence if they fail to do so. So, is impartiality compatible with opinion? Does anyone really care about impartiality? After all, the rules don't apply to newspapers or social media platforms. And has the pursuit of news impartiality been a good thing for society or did it occasionally give undue weight to marginal views and voices? Roger... Thank you very much for being here today. You're a man who's grappled with this question for many years at the BBC, no doubt. Yes, and they're fascinating issues and it's evolving and changing and some big challenges coming up. So, absolutely. 
And can you give us a sense of, of how seriously this idea of due impartiality is taken in a, in a TV newsroom? It's taken very seriously. And it was interesting when Tim Davey became Director General of the BBC, he wanted to restate the BBC's commitment to impartiality. And I think he was absolutely right to do that. And I think it's incredibly important that the major UK broadcasters, uh, the BBC, Sky News, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, do stand by the idea that they are not on a particular side of an argument. They represent a great diversity of views and they will test arguments irrespective of fear or favour. So that seems to me very important. On the other hand, I also welcome new entrants into the market and it's a good thing that there's some change. It's a good thing there are new voices. And probably the most interesting development in the last 10 years has been the way that LBC has rethought impartiality. So that um, if you look at an individual show on LBC, and you've worked there, you know that the Nick Ferrari breakfast show has a very different view to James O'Brien's mid-morning show. And they're both very good shows, but they are not impartial within each programme. What LBC does is achieve impartiality over a period of time by representing a range of different views. So LBC has really pushed at that and brought some new attitudes into the market. And were they... to pioneers in that sense, if I can phrase it like that? Were they the first to sort of test the boundaries of impartiality? I think they were the first to come up with the idea that you didn't need to be impartial within a single programme. And if you listen to, I think James O'Brien is a fantastic broadcaster, if you listen to his monologues at the start of the programme, they are not impartial. And if you only happen to listen at 10 o'clock in the morning, you don't get a view of the totality of views there might be about Brexit. So that was a change, definitely. Definitely. And I know some people in the BBC um, on Five Live have looked rather longingly at LBC because it's a very compelling proposition. It's a very attractive radio station to listen to because you do get this diversity of views. But the BBC has never been able to go that far down the road of stretching a definition of due impartiality. And that's why it's going to be fascinating to see what new uh, the Andrew Neil operation brings in and how it de- tries to define impartiality within, as you correctly said, an Ofcom framework. I really love your use of the word stretching. I mean, it, I think what you're getting at is that this is an elastic term, impartiality. I mean, it can be, it can be stretched, it can be pushed. Yes, and I think it's okay for the BBC to be held to a higher standard than other people. So the BBC, because it has such an enormous amount of output, and it has BBC One and it has Radio 4 and it has Five Live and a website and local radio, uh, the BBC would be incredibly vulnerable to accusations about bias if it started loosening the impartiality framework too much. If you are a radio station in London and then spreading out nationwide like LBC, having something distinctive seems to me to be okay and the fact that you do get Ferrari at breakfast and O'Brien mid-morning means that they are not going into the bunker in a way that you see in America and you mentioned MSNBC in America if you watch Fox News on the right and MSNBC on the liberal left they are totally different views of the world and that's all you get on those channels you don't hear any other view and they have different news different opinions different facts, famously, about what they report. And, uh, you know, I know you're not a, an historian of broadcasting, but I'm going to put you on the spot with this question anyway. Do you know where it came from, this idea of due impartiality, when it started, what the aim was? And can you help us understand why it doesn't apply to newspapers? And why, why shouldn't it apply across the board? Why is it only broadcasting? 
you're correct that I'm not um, a historian in, in that respect, but the newspapers have been partial forever and the newspapers were very vigorous in their different views of the world at the time the BBC was founded in the 1920s. And broadcasting was seen as something that was both new and innovative, but also a threat to newspapers. So I think the idea that the BBC should be different and should have the obligation to be true and fact-based was baked into the origins of the BBC. Famously, of course, it had a controversial role in the general strike in 1926 when it's seen as being very much on the side of the establishment. Um, It had the period of the Second World War where it was operating under a very different set of constraints at a time of literal existential struggle for the survival of the nation. But over the years, a model that served the BBC best is that it represents uh, Conservative and Labour and Liberal Democrat and SNP, and it also represents um, monarchists and Republicans, and it's actually uh, representing all the people, and it's trying to put all those arguments there and steer a path towards what's true within that. So let's get into the mechanics of it then a little bit. How do you achieve due impartiality? Does it mean, and, and we can go by, if you like, the the sort of the newly defined version, the LBC version, where it is a little bit stretched. But is it about giving equal time to voices from opposite ends of the spectrum? Is it about giving equal amount of prime time, for example? Is it about, like, what what are the things that, that create that balance? It's complicated. And I suppose it comes down partly to editorial judgment. And if you look at both the Ofcom code and the BBC's interpretation of it, you don't have to give equal time to subjects where the balance of opinion is wildly on one side or the other. So despite some of the critics of the BBC and the other broadcasters, the BBC has never given equal time to people who deny man-made climate change. Um, It has given the overwhelming bulk of its time to scientists and others who think that man-made climate change is happening. It may very occasionally let a dissenting view on the air, but it would usually say that this does represent a very minority view within this debate. Um, On the other hand, something like Brexit, where the country is divided and politicians are divided, probably the guiding light should be that you give roughly equal time to Remainers and Leavers. So you make a judgment about an individual story and the extent to which majority or minority opinion is aligned within your programming. And um, if you went through a whole year and you'd never had anyone on air who expressed a minority view, you might regard that as a bit of a problem. But where you would really take the thing very seriously is if you found that you had a great imbalance of Conservatives or Labour people, in which case you need to put that right and represent what the real national debate is. Mm. And let's talk about GB News and News UK specifically then for a moment and I, I mentioned that lineup of presenters before we obviously need to reserve some judgment until we've watched the channel but let's assume for a moment it, it is right leaning by the letter of the law or as you understand it can it be right leaning and still be impartial I've been watching this with um, great fascination as I'm sure you and lots of other people have I, I've been surprised that the lineup so far is so heavily right wing. I thought they might try to do a, an LBC and have one or two uh, more lefties there. As, as I read what Andrew Neil has been saying, um, he seems to be arguing that due impartiality is achieved by the range of contributors. And that really is the way that talk radio has been going. So though talk radio's hosts are mainly right wing, they do put some 
Labour people or Liberals on the air and give them a chance to have their say. And my hunch is that's what the Andrew Neil operation is going to do. Now, question is, if every single presenter is going to do a, an O'Brien-type monologue at the start of their programme or do what they do in America with MSNBC or Fox and give their views, can you get due impartiality if all the views given by presenters tend one way, even if guests go another? I don't know. I suspect that's going to be right. great Especially debate. when guests, guests uh, are unlikely to be as polished in terms of you know, polished broadcasters and communicators as, as the people presenting the, the right-wing view. Yes, I, I, I found it fascinating. I, I was on talk radio a few weeks ago and I was given a fairly hard time as a BBC person, in that case, defending the BBC. And when I looked at the comments on talk radio, you should never look at comments, I know, but I looked at the comments and every single comment was hostile in the, you know, who's this guy from the BBC? What's he on about? And, you know, and, and talk radio clearly has a constituency, which is very different from LBC, which uh, every time I look at the LBC figures, they are brilliant demographically. They've got a great age range, great mix of social backgrounds. And you could see that GB News might be an older, more conservative demographic of people watching it and of presenting it, and therefore how much a view of somebody who dissents is going to count, I don't know. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, In terms of Ofcom's ability to do something about it, I mean, is that, do you think, what's happening here is that every time you have an LBC, then you have a talk radio, then you can have a GB News, people are just continuing to push the boundaries. Is it because Ofcom lack the clout or the teeth to really stop this from happening? I mean, we're just heading in one direction, aren't we, really, which is that news organisations, broadcast or print, are just going to be partial. They have a difficult regulatory job to do, and I find myself... being pulled a bit two ways on this. So I don't think there is any great harm if you have a range of um, stations like Russia Today and uh, Al Jazeera and others, because they're quite minority. And I don't think it matters if you sometimes get um, a set of opinions which are not compatible with mainstream political debate. I think the important thing to say is, is not to let the BBC be contaminated by this. But if you have 79 channels you can watch and all saying different things, I'm not personally too fussed. Where I think Ofcom and the BBC really have run into some problems is when they try then, when it bleeds into mainstream broadcasting, are they then letting their standards down? And I I thought they ran into lots of contortions when the Naga Munchetti incident happened on breakfast when she criticised Donald Trump. I felt that Naga herself actually handled it very well. I was more critical about the production team who'd left her with a minute and a half to fill and give her views. But what Ofcom and the BBC decided was that presenting a breakfast TV show is not really reading the news. Well, I think it is. I mean, they do read the news at the top of the hour. And I don't see much difference between Naga saying something at 20 past eight in the morning to Hugh Edwards saying something at 20 past 10 in the 10 o'clock news, which I think people wouldn't allow. So I would be a bit more austere about making sure mainstream broadcast news remains impartial. But otherwise, let a thousand flowers bloom in terms of what you can find on the fringes of the skybox. I mean, without meaning to get too philosophical about it, though, I feel like the way you're describing it, you you almost feel that there is an inherent or, I know it's complicated, but an inherent or innate objective definition of what impartiality is for someone like the BBC. But isn't the problem that uh, even for the BBC, whoever's producing the programme, whoever's presenting the programme, their life experience 
their biases, their whatever it may be, will influence the content and how you feel about the impartiality of that content depends on your own experiences. So there is no, it's a very nebulous thing, this this due impartiality, right? Like it, you can never be truly impartial, surely. You're right. And you, you, you make a very good point there. I think the ways you try to counteract that is you have diversity of thought within your teams. So where I have sometimes been critical about the BBC, both when I was in it and outside it, is that the BBC can be a bit of a slightly liberal, slightly metropolitan organisation. And I've been there and done it. You know, I, I, when we were on the World at One together, fantastic programme team on the World at One. But we were all 30-something, university-educated, um, Islington and Richmond-living people who didn't really know what it's like being a hill farmer in Brecon or being a car worker in Sunderland. And th- that's why I'm in favour of the BBC devolving programmes and having editors more around the country, people with real clout in different regions, and also making sure that it's diverse in ethnicity and gender and age and socioeconomic background, which is really important too. And there have been people whose views have been excluded by the BBC. The the red wall people, I think, in the last election were not heard as much as they should be on the BBC. And you've got to put that right. So you've got to keep testing your impartiality. But I think where you can be objective is you can look at the evidence on a particular story. And climate change is, again, a good example. The scientific evidence leads you in one direction. And I think even on something like Brexit, you know, the way I would try to square the circle on Brexit is to say that the economic argument for staying in the EU was very powerfully strong. And most economists said that Britain would be better off inside the EU. However, if your view is that sovereignty was more important and being in charge of your own destiny as a nation, well, in that case, logically, you would vote leave. So I think you can get something which is broadly true, which both sides, if they were sitting in a darkened room trying to be nice to each other, would pretty much agree on. Interesting. And do you think that impartiality is more important than the perception of impartiality? And what I mean by that is, take the climate change thing, for example. If you were to look at the amount of... I understand the point you made about time, but let's say you look about the amount of time given, the number of voices given to one side of the argument compared to another. Presumably, it doesn't matter as long as the consumer the viewer, the listener, feels that what they are watching or listening to is impartial, regardless of where the time has been spent or the number of guests or so on and so forth. If the viewer feels that the, or the listener feels that the content is impartial and there are not going to be any complaints to Ofcom, Ofcom's going to let it go, right? Yeah. Students here at Selwyn, when I talk to them about media brands and they give me the off he goes again kind of look, um, they do regard the BBC and Sky News and other traditional broadcasters as a place they will go to to find out whether it's true or not. So they may see stuff on the internet, they'll see stuff on Twitter and they'll see stuff around. And if they want to know, is it true, they go to the BBC or or the established uh, networks. And that's good. And you want to keep that, make sure you do keep that. I think it's also right that every so often there should be a challenge to where the status quo is. So one example about where the status quo is actually rather on the right-wing side rather than the left-wing side is that on public spending, um, it was regarded in the 1990s as axiomatic that the right thing to do was stick with Tory spending plans. And Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were held to, you must stick to Tory spending plans. 
And in, even in the last election or the election before it, um, John McDonald's plans were seen as being wildly throwing money all over the place. And of course, there are now a fraction of what Rishi Sunak has spent. So I think you could say that broadcasters have traditionally been rather conservative with a small c about fiscal rectitude. And that's interesting. And if you think about that, you should be testing yourselves about have we been impartial there? So I think the two things are both making sure your facts are right, but also being open to the idea that your concept of impartiality may not be 100% correct. Do you think people who aren't close media watchers really care about this issue in today's world? They do, because um, if you look at the, the Reuters Institute of Journalism in Oxford did some surveys on impartiality and people want it. I think something like 76% of people say they want impartial broadcasting. And I think people can want two things. They want that thing about being able to check the news and make sure it's true. But they might want to watch a very opinionated documentary at nine o'clock in the evening. They might want to listen to Nick Ferrari tomorrow morning and get a different view. So it's both and. And the, the research from Ofcom and lots of other people shows that people want impartiality in the core news output, but are much more relaxed about a range of different views on more relaxed programming. And so am I, let a thousand flowers bloom again. And the key thing there is just making sure that not everything comes from um, a rather stereotypical Islington viewpoint, but that you get the genuine views of people in Redcar and in Basingstoke in a way that makes the output more interesting. I mean, the whole point about diversity of thought and opinion is actually it's more interesting. For sure. But do you think that actually, I mean, I know people say they want it, but in a way, I guess if you ask people that question with a yes or no answer, they'd probably lean towards yes. So I don't know how much you can rely on that. But, you know, do you actually think there have been some downsides of this pursuit of impartiality? Do you think it has at times given undue weight to slightly marginal voices or it has made a lot of people feel a little bit unheard or yeah has it always been a good thing no it hasn't and there is what um, i and others have termed the robotic impartiality of the brexit campaign and i thought where the broadcasters there in many ways went into safe territory because they agreed that you'd have the Remain side saying something for 40 seconds and then the Leave side saying something for 40 seconds. But it meant that impartiality was a complete ping-pong match of the two sides. And I remember watching both watching it at the time and also watching it at a, an awards judging thing about nine months later. And when the BBC got the scoop with Barack Obama saying that Britain would go to the back of the queue if it left the EU... The headlines on the 10 o'clock news that night said, Barack Obama says Britain would go to the back of the queue. Nigel Farage says, no, it wouldn't. And that is really unhelpful. And what I would interpret due impartiality as being is give Barack Obama his 10 minutes, his 15 minutes to make that case. And at some point in the next two or three days, you can have Nigel Farage and others um, giving a counter case. But give them the time and the space to do it and test those arguments properly. And don't have something that says, um, you know, he says it's white, she says it's green. And that means you've covered the story. You really haven't. Mm. And it's changed the nature of debate in this country, I think, no doubt. Um, when you're at the BBC, I mean, probably pre-Brexit, I'd imagine it was something like uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict that probably divided opinion more than anything else on on, uh, on impartiality. But when you're facing that kind of 
pressure from two sides and that much criticism and that much scrutiny. What was it like to work in that environment? It must have made you pretty apprehensive day to day in terms of what you put out on the air. It's a huge, a huge pressure. It's difficult. And I think it's got much, much worse because of social media. Um, So we at least would get a letter two days later saying that we'd done something terrible. Whereas now, and I think um, rather like football players, I'm strongly in favour of presenters switching Twitter off when they're anywhere near being on air, because that constant yammering away is really not at all helpful. I think it both undermines your own confidence sometimes in your abilities as a presenter, but also gives you an unfiltered, not necessarily accurate view about the way the country is responding. So it's much harder now for people to see a clear way through impartiality. And I think you have to try to be very, very clear-headed. And you're right. I think the Israel-Palestine conflict is a really good example where for all the inquiries and all the reviews and all the complaints over the years, nobody has ever shown there is a systemic BBC bias, either pro-Israel or pro-Palestine. And the BBC has navigated its way through that, as have all the other broadcasters, very well indeed. But you will never convince some of its more vocal critics. On the issue of social media, Do you think, I I know we're getting into a dangerous territory here because it is a pretty live debate, but do you think that BBC presenters or any broadcast news presenters and reporters for that matter should be allowed to express their view on social media? And does that undermine potentially impartiality? Yeah, I'm quite hard line on this. I would prefer it. I mean, some European broadcasters had a policy that their presenters should not be on Twitter. And I'm heading to that level of austerity. Because I think once you are on Twitter, you start giving some of your views away. And if I think about the people I grew up admiring as broadcasters from, um, you know, the Dimbleby family through to um, John Cole and people like that in the BBC political unit, uh, I didn't know what they thought about stories. And I'd rather not know now. And I think this idea that you engage with your audience is really difficult and made more so by Twitter. And I you know, my own salutary experience on Twitter is I was pretty convinced through the 2019 election campaign that the Conservatives were going to win. And then on the election night, I was looking at Twitter at nine o'clock at night and seeing this thing like, we're only about 100 votes from knocking Boris Johnson out in Hillingdon and, you know, the Corbyn army's on the march. And I actually thought by about five to 10, gosh, Labour is going to win this election. How how, how remarkable. And of course, you then get the exit poll at 10 o'clock and realise that, um, you know, Twitter was not representing the nation. And and that's why you have to be really, really careful about social media. It's it's not just the abuse you get, which is terrible. And I, I think if you look at someone like Laura Koonsberg, the abuse of Laura Koonsberg on Twitter is dreadful. It is dreadful about lots of other presenters, especially women and people of colour, and therefore um, keep away from it, really, and concentrate on trying to get it right for your audience, the big silent majority at home. Well, anybody who's been on the receiving end of any kind of abuse, sounds like you have, I I have, it is absolutely awful. I can't imagine what it must be like for the likes of Laura Koonsberg. But the one thing I will say is I think that one of the maybe successes of LBC and others is particularly in terms of reaching younger people, I think that this sort of removal of the smoke and mirrors, right, and the bringing down of this veneer and this kind of polished presentation where you feel like you know the people, you can physically see the newsrooms buzzing in the background, like people feel more in touch. And I think that is quite an important part of getting people to believe the news. 
if you know, I, I, it can't look too polished. And I sort of wonder whether reporters and, and presenters being on social media and being humans uh, and saying what they actually think helps to reach that younger audience and helps engage them in news in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done if we still only had a, a 10 o'clock news broadcast on terrestrial television. I, I'm not a tech phobe. And in fact, when we did the Olympics, we embraced social media as a way of seeing what the audience thought about sport. And that is a pretty good way of using an audience. And there is an example on, I think, the second day we were doing the live coverage, um, the time clock went out of sync on the cycling. And that's something that even the hardest line sport fans in BBC Sport didn't quite see, and I certainly wouldn't have seen. Um, And it was Twitter which said there's a timing problem there, which was with the host broadcaster. So we were able to pick that up, get Gary Lineker to apologise for it and move on. So I think engagement can be good. And I think for news, I would go with both and, which is I for for many news operations, especially for local radio and for some of the more minority channels, engagement can be really, really good. Do I want to see Tom Bradby and Hugh Edwards and Cathy Newman um, exchanging blow-by-blow accounts about the stories they're writing? Probably not. And uh, some, in some way, there is still a place for an Olympian newscaster who isn't at the and call of some mad person on Twitter. Uh, final question for you, because I think we're, we're running out of time. Ofcom, um, and to get back to the, the, the kind of issue at hand here, certainly at the time of recording this, the ex-Daily Mail editor, Paul Dacre, is in the running to be the next Ofcom chairman. And I think we have a pretty good idea of where he stands on the, uh, on the political spectrum. Now, if he was to get the job, do you think that changes the the calculus of things do you think that the accepted view of impartiality on any given issue shifts to the right at all or is it actually got nothing to really do with Ofcom I hope not uh, Ofcom is a really quite a, an economic regulator and it's a rather austere job in which you haven't really heard of most of the previous chairs of Ofcom I think Paul Dacre is a whatever your view of Paul Dacre he's a significant and charismatic figure within the world of newspapers, and he might make one or two public pronouncements that would liven the place up a bit. In terms of could Paul Dacre get his hands on the BBC or change the editorial agenda of Channel 4 News, I'd be very surprised if he could. And I mean, he doesn't I like he... the BBC, does he? No, I think there's, there's always been a bit of a love-hate relationship. He does listen to it a lot or watch it. And, um, you know, I think Paul... As to, has as a, to most people who criticise the BBC, uh, I find. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and Paul, I, I, I knew Paul a bit when I was editor of the Today programme. And he did listen rather obsessively to the Today programme and has a strong view about where it should be. And that's perfectly legitimate. And I, I don't think you really want to have people in Ofcom who've got no conception of journalism. I think journalism is a, an important factor as well. But I, I don't think impartiality should be the, the fiat of one individual or one government. And it's very, very important. You get a great diversity of views in the regulation as well as in the output that you get. Again, I keep coming back to the fact, the more diverse you are, the more interesting you are. It's just a fact. And in terms of what the future of TV news looks like, I mean, do you think that these new channels 
are a threat to the likes of, of Sky News and the BBC News Channel? Do you think that they have a long future? I mean, I said at the beginning that ITV's news channel only lasted five years. It's really difficult to make news profitable. In fact, I don't know if anybody can make news profitable. It's a very expensive business. It's a very hard thing to do, very hard to attract viewers. I mean, how, how seriously do you take these guys, these new entrants? Anything that adds to the range of opinion is an investment in news. The most important thing, if we see the way that local newspapers are being stripped out, you're not getting any investment in journalism, and there are people sitting in the equivalent of call centres hundreds of miles away from where they're supposed to be reporting, I'm very strongly in favour of investment in news. And, of course, one of the great joys, really, for the BBC and ITV and Sky, amid all the challenges and awful stories of the past year or two, is that news has done really well for its channels. And uh, you saw a couple of years ago, people saying, you know, will Bulletin stay on BBC One? Well, actually, the six o'clock news is one of the ratings powerhouses of the BBC. Uh, the 6.30 regional news is the most popular programme most nights on the BBC. And you're then looking at some shows, some dramas getting 1.2 million at nine o'clock. So there's every reason to be confident about news. And the more investment in it, the better. But making sure that you have that core of impartiality, even if not every bit of it is regulated with an inch of its life. But I guess I'm asking, do you think that the Sky News and the, and the BBC are worried about these new guys coming in and what it means for them and taking audiences away? I don't think they should be worried. I think there's a an interesting battle going on about politics. And if GB News is successful at showing an alternative agenda, there is no doubt that the BBC's agenda at times is too narrow. And the BBC has had a reorganisation which has concentrated even more power in even fewer hands. So how the BBC responds politically is going to be fascinating and how it tries to make sure it has diversity of opinion alongside GB News. But it's a quite a difficult tightrope to tread because you don't want to just follow by default an agenda cooked up much as I'd love it by Andrew Neil. Um, on the other hand, you do want to make sure that you're not the voice of Islington in a way that in its very worst moments, the BBC sometimes has been. Mm, absolutely. All right, listen, Roger, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. It's been fascinating to hear your views. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.